we have a lot to cover today. The first thing I want to talk about is kind of go back over some uh, um, issues from books two and three. I want to underscore um, the sort of education that I think Socrates has given to Glaucon and Adamantus already by the beginning of book four. Um, second, I want to talk more in depth about Socrates' um, definition of justice as mining one's own business, right, or doing one's own. Um, and that's obviously a cryptic uh, and confusing and strange definition of justice. And I want to spend some time talking about what that means. And because I actually think it means a slightly different things at different points in the conversation. Third, I want to talk more explicitly about books five and six and about some of the changes that justice undergoes over the course of books five and six, because this will be my main argument for today. Just, Justice goes from being a fairly conservative virtue in book five, at the beginning of book five, to being actually a quite radical virtue at the end of book six. And that's connected to the entrance of philosophy into the discussion. Okay, so first I wanna review something that I think is important. Um, I think that at the beginning of book two, Glaucon and Adimantus, if you really you know, strip away all the fancy stuff, their basic question to Socrates at the beginning of book two is, why should I be just? What's in it for me? I mean, that's really what they're asking, right? Um, and I think that according to Socrates and Plato, um, if you, are asking about justice, what's in it for me, then you're not actually ready to study what justice is um, in the first place. And so in that sense, I think books two and three are preparatory work that Socrates is doing on Glaucon and Adamantus to make them ready to study the question of what justice is. Um, and in order for them to be ready to study the question of what justice is, they have to give up certain attachments that they have. So uh, Glaucon, I mean, Adamantus has to give up his attachment to uh, the cultural authority of the poets, right? Um, the sort of authoritative texts that he relies on. Uh, he has to give up that attachment. Um, Glaucon has to give up his attachment to popular opinion um, and to popular tastes um, and so forth um, and and to become a bit more um, uh, a bit more abstemious a bit more uh, uh, skeptical of the the tastes that he has and thus by the time they get around to finding justice in book four the brothers have accepted a couple of things and I said this last time but I just want to underscore it again they have accepted that only a careful cultural formation can prepare people to want to be just, right? That is, regardless of, you know, we, we saw when we talked, you know, when we read Callicles and when we read Thersimachus, there was this debate about the question of whether justice is by nature, phusis, uh, periphusis, or whether it is 
um, only conventional or perinomos, right? And while Socrates doesn't answer that question, he does, I think, take a stand on a very closely related question, which is, regardless of whether justice is natural or artificial or uh, purely legal, only custom, only nomos can prepare people to want to be just. So there has to be that cultural formation there in order for justice to seem like a good thing. And that's an important concession. The second thing that the brothers accept by the beginning of book four is that the powerful in society, in the city, are going to need all sorts of institutional checks in order to keep them just. And to keep them, most importantly, to keep them believing that pursuing the common good is in their own interest, right? That's the point of the noble law, is to convince the guardians, the rulers, that pursuing the common good is in their own individual interests, right? And those are both very important concessions, right? Um, that it's only under the conditions of this cultural formation on the one hand, and only under the conditions of this, these institutional checks um, on the powerful um, that the pursuit of justice can seem like a, a natural and um, worthwhile uh, and individually self-interested thing to do. So now uh, with that in the background then, I wanna talk more about the definition of justice, right? Because if, if, if Glaucon and Adamantus had to come to have those two beliefs um, before they could search for justice, then we need to talk more about what justice is. Um, so the, one of the things that they do in book four, um, and this is, this is supposed to be the payoff of the discussion at, of the question that was raised at the beginning of book two, is they find justice all alone in the soul, right? And I wanna just unpack that argument um, a bit. So this is also gonna involve some reiteration of things that we talked about last time, but it's going to very quickly, I think, uh, merge into new things and, and connect us to book five and help us to understand what's happening at the, uh, especially at the beginning of book five, um, when they agree that women should be uh, included in the guardian class and the ruling class. So Socrates begins from a hypothesis that, and the hypothesis is that the soul has the same forms or classes in itself, um, the Greek word is a day, um, as the city does. And these forms or classes are as uh, follows. I'm gonna try to put these on the whiteboard here. On the one hand, you have the, the ruling class or the ruling form, which is the part of the soul that loves learning. Um, and then he uh, transforms that a little bit and calls that uh, calculation or logismos. The second part, of the soul and the second class in the city um, is the, the fighting or manly part, and that's thumos. And the third part is the desiring part, 
and the part that loves useful things and, and there's a the word for desire here is epithumia so uh, and epithumia you see it has the same root as thumos um, and what that means is like basically what you desire are the things that you have set your heart on right the things that are attractive to you right? socrates argues that so obviously we have many, many desires um, and they pull us in many, many directions, right? So desire is like this. Desire is centrifugal. It pulls us um, all over the place, right? Now, normally what we do is we sort out which of these desires to follow and in what order by using logismos, by reckoning. That is, we set a priority on them. We're like, well, okay, I'm going to do this first, and then this, and then this, and then this, and this, and then finally, I'll follow that desire, right? We set, our, we set a path for ourselves in that way. But this means that desire and logismos are different from one another, right? Because logismos prioritizes amongst our desires. But Sometimes, although we prioritize things like this, we act contrary to logismos. And, you know, we, we say, well, forget one, two, and three, I'm just going to go for four. And when we do that, then we probably, you know, get mad at ourselves, right? <laughs> We're like, oh, why did I uh, go contrary to my own uh, wishes here? And when we get mad at ourselves, that shows us, that's, that's the experience of thumos, right? Um, that's the experience of us, of there being something in us that um, was actually attached to that priority and that um, is disappointed in us for um, disregarding it. So now we have three parts and they're all differentiated. Well, epithumia is not logismos because of that. Uh, Epithumia is not thumos because when we're weak-willed, we get mad at ourselves. We get feel disappointed in ourselves. Right? Um, but Socrates also argues logismos and thumos are not different because we seem to have thumos uh, even before we have logismos because logismos is related to the Greek word or is derived from the Greek word for logos, which means speech. Um, and we, we get mad even before we have speech. So thumos and logismos can't be the same, according to Socrates. This is all pretty rough and ready, obviously. But by this means, he, he sorts out these three sort of faculties of the soul. And then he concludes that if all of this is so, then the virtues in the soul might look like the virtues in the city, right? So wisdom means that logismos, the ruling class, knows what is good for the whole um, and for the parts. That is, in this case, logismos knows how to um, prioritize the different desires and to bring order to them so that so as to secure the good of the whole courage um, is 
what when Thumos preserves um, what Logiosmos declares, right? Um, and sort of locks us in to this path, right? So that we stay on this path and don't get distracted um, by other, you know, shiny objects. Moderation um, then is when all of the parts of the soul are in harmony with one another and agree um, that logismos should lead. So that means thumos isn't just sort of dragging us along um, according to the path that logismos has um, laid out, but like our desires are happy to uh, be satisfied in the order and in the way that logismos has set out. And finally, justice, right? And here just Socrates is maybe most vague. He says only that, um, this is a quote, he says, man will be just because of that which we are so often saying and in the same way. I mean, that's an incredibly vague formulation. Um, and of course, uh, Glaucon and Adamantus are like, uh, what? what are we always saying? And what they are always saying, Socrates says, is that justice equals minding one's own business. This is a, a phrase that Socrates is going to use a lot. Um, and it is to how to prating. Socrates has used this phrase a number of times over the course of the book. And he means slightly different things by it in different cases. Here he contrasts it with um, what he calls polupragmonin, uh, uh, which means just to be busy with many things. Right? But if you look back at all of the instances in which Socrates has used ta how to pratain, it actually means um, three different things in different contexts, three very different things. Um, and this is, uh, I think, a very important part of Socrates' argument. Um, and so I wanna be careful about this. Um, the first place that Socrates uses the phrase is at uh, 370b. So that's all the way back in book two. Right. I want to look closely at what he says there, or it's actually, it's, well, it's between 370A and B. Um, he says, we'll start around 370A. I'll read a little passage to you. He says, this is when they're first building the city in speech. Socrates says, um, he he's just building up to it. He asks, all right, was, must each of these people, each of these artisans that were building the city out of, must each of them put his work at the disposition of all in common? For example, must the farmer, one man, provide food for four and spend four times as much time and labor in the provision of food and then give it in common to the others? Or must he neglect them and produce a fourth part of the food in a fourth part of the time and use the other three parts for the provision of a house, clothing, and shoes, not taking the trouble to share in common with others, but minding his own business for himself. That's um, the tahau tu prate, minding one's own business for himself. In this instance, 
tahatu pratain means to be self-sufficient. It means doing everything for oneself and not dividing labor with others or sharing uh, one's produce with others. That is almost exactly the opposite of the way that Socrates um, uses it um, when he is talking about what justice is now. Look at um, 423D. And in book four, um, he says that, uh, that, so they're talking about what it is that makes the city into one city. Uh, and um, Socrates says, um, I mean, he's being ironical here, um, uh, says still slighter than that, what he really means is uh, even more important than that, is what we mentioned earlier when we said that if a child of slight ability were born of the guardians, he would have to be sent off to the others. And if a serious one were born of the others, he would have to be sent off to the guardians. This was intended to make plain that each of the other citizens too must be brought to that which naturally suits him, one man, one job, so that each man practicing his own, which is one, will not become many, but one. And thus you see the whole city will naturally go to be one and not many. So here, tahautu pratain means one man, one job. The very opposite of what it meant back in book two, right? The very opposite. Um, it means being completely dependent upon others um, for the things that are not best suited for you yourself, right? It means doing the one job for which one's nature suits one, or specializing and or practicing one ergon, one work throughout your life. So that's completely different, right? Um, in book five, which you read uh, for today, there's yet another use, um, and this one is going to change the meaning once again. Um, this is at uh, 453b. Here, Socrates is introducing this uh, new thing, namely the equal participation of women um, in ruling. This, uh, we'll come back to this and talk a little bit more about this, um, but um, obviously, uh, just to underscore something, um, Socrates is not a um, is not actually a feminist here, but we'll come back to that. Um, he 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 thinks women are worse at every practice, but um, they're nonetheless the distribution of abilities is the same in men as in women. Okay, so but the, this is in that context, and what he says here is that in the midst of making this argument, he says. At the beginning of the settlement of the city you were founding, uh, you yourselves agreed, so he's ventriloquizing for uh, opponents of what he's saying here. You yourself agreed that each one must mind his own business according to nature. 
That's tahau tu prate. I suppose we did, of course. Can it be that a woman doesn't differ in her nature very much from a man? But of course she differs. Then isn't it also fitting to prescribe a different work to each according to its nature? Certainly. How can it be then that you aren't making a mistake now and contradicting yourself when you assert that the men and women must do the same things, although they have a nature that is most distinct? What have you as an apology in the lives of this, you surprising man? Socrates is, uh, admits that this, is a difficult, that this is a difficult thing, but then he says to Glaucon, this is the, the next page over, this is at 454D, uh, uh, or 454E, just about. If either the class of men or that of women shows its superiority in some art or other practice, then we'll say that that art must be assigned to it. But if they look as though they differ in this alone, that the female bears and the male mounts, we'll assert that it has not thereby yet been proved that a woman differs from a man with respect to what we're talking about. Rather, we'll still suppose that our guardians and their women must practice the same things. And rightly, he said, Glaucon said. After that, won't we bid the man who says the opposite to teach us this very thing with respect to what art or what practice connected with the organization of a city, the nature of a woman and a man is not the same, but rather different. And just as it, um, at least that's just. Well, now perhaps another man would also say just what you had said a little while ago, that it's not easy to answer adequately on the spur of the moment, but upon consideration, it isn't at all hard. Yes, he would say that. Do you want us then to beg the man who contradicts us in this way to follow us and see if we can somehow point out to him that there is no practice relevant to the government of a city that is peculiar to women? Certainly. At the beginning of book five, ta how to pratain, mining one's own business, has changed again. Where it once meant being self-sufficient, and then it meant one man, one job. Here, in this discussion of the integration of women into the ruling class, it means doing whatever one can to be the best human being one can be. That is, it means following the argument wherever it goes, allowing logismos to determine what it is that you do, right? That is, because logismos is what is best in each of us, right? So what Socrates argues at the beginning of book five um, is that, that women ought to be integrated into the, into the guardian class. In the course of doing this, they explicitly argue that this women's law is in accord with the injunction to how to pratain, right? That's the passage, the stuff I just read. And moreover, at the beginning of the, this book, Socrates admits that the guardians, both male and female, learn and practice three arts. Um, this is at 452a. They practice, they learn and practice the art of music, the art of gymnastic, and the art of war. So as Socrates says at the end of book four, one man, one art was an image of justice or a phantom of justice. The word is edelon, which we'll come back to later. One man, one job was the 
phantom or image of justice, but it wasn't the real thing. It turns out that the one job that everyone has is to be the best human being possible. And that means a complete transformation in the conception of what justice demands. But it also means that there's a fundamental disanalogy between justice in the city and justice in the soul. In the city, justice is each individual doing his or her own task, um, or that's what they had agreed to in book four. But in the soul, and that means for each individual, um, each component, the desires, the thumos, and logismos, they do their own um, task of necessity, right? Each desire is simple. Thumos only never does one thing. So does logismos, right? Um, and so that would seem to mean that every soul is automatically just according to the definition of justice that they agreed for for the city. But that can't be right, right? It's obviously not true that every soul is automatically just. So rather, in the soul, justice is about the internal relation, not about what each um, component, each part of the soul itself does. In other words, justice in the soul is more like what moderation was in the city. It's a form of of self-mastery, right? Um, So it turns out, and this is kind of surprising, only the rulers of the city are just. They're the only ones who are really just because they're the only ones who do what is the real business of humanity. And this is where book five and six are going to go. And they do this only to the extent that they philosophize. So that's where I want to go next. So I want to step back from that for a second. So in the course then of book four, justice or doing one's own business, uh, mining one's own business, seems to go from a very conservative sort of virtue, right? Basically, justice means um, keeping within the bounds of one's own history, right? Practicing the art that you have been assigned that's appropriate to you um, and that you have practiced your whole life. To becoming a much more radically rationalist virtue, that is where it means doing whatever logismo says to do, regardless of pain or pleasure, right? Being just means being a master of yourself, which means that the best part of you, the best in you, which for Socrates is your mind, masters everything else, right? And so you live rationally. You live according to the dictates of reason. This new sense of what justice entails is what is then dramatized, I think, in book five and six in Socrates' three proposals for sort of uh, changing how we think about how the rulers uh, rule in the city. He calls these the three waves, right? 
the first wave is the one that we've already talked about, that women will undertake all the same tasks in the city as men, just insofar as they're capable, because Socrates argues, women are different from men in body, but not in soul, right? Women are just as much human beings as men are. And because the rule of logismos is proper to your humanity as such, women are no different than men in that regard, in what is appropriate. As I mentioned, um, this is not a robust feminism. Um, that is, Socrates still thinks that women are worse at everything than men are. Um, but it is a sort of humanism, right? It says that there should be one standard for all human beings, and there's one work that is best for every human being. And that means that there's not, there's not such a thing in, under this conception, there's not such a thing as a farmer by nature and a, a, um, a shoe uh, maker by nature, a smith by nature. Rather, what you are by nature is a human being. Um, and that means you are, a, some, you are a, someone whose desires ought to be subordinated to logos, to uh, rationality, to speech, and to argument. So I said this isn't a feminist argument. It's a humanist argument. Um, but it does introduce women into the dialogue in a way that they hadn't been before. Um, and that seems quite radical in its, uh, in its context. Um, you should notice, though, that women very quickly stop being talked about again, um, which uh, is interesting. Um, the second wave is that children will be bred and raised in common so that no private families will exist among the rulers. Right? In other words, uh, the rulers are supposed to treat themselves like livestock. And this makes, uh, I mean, this has several surprising effects or, or unexplored effects, right? It seems like this would make it impossible for any child from the artisan farmer class to be elevated into the ranks of the soldiers and rulers, for example. Um, but the rationale is to make the citizenry into one body so far as possible. So that they, Socrates even says, they share pleasures and pains. They say my own and not my own about the same thing in the same way at the same time. It says that at 462 B and C. And I think in the context of Athens, we can also see this as sort of a radicalization of the reforms that Solon and Cleisthenes uh, carried out on the traditional organization of the Athenian polity around, around tribes, and which were at least ostensibly sort of quasi-familial relations. So by, especially after Cleisthenes reforms, the, the tribes are all broken up and, and it, elections come out of the deems instead, and the deems are made up of members of different tribes. And you can see a similar, but even more radical version of that uh, in Socrates' proposal here, that people, the ruling class, especially, I mean, the citizenry, should um, think of the city as their family, right? 
um, and should not think of, uh, should not have some sort of family loyalty aside from their loyalty to uh, the city as a whole. The third Socrates um, proposes, and this is the third way of the, and the, the most controversial according to his interlocutors, is that philosophers should rule as kings. Um, and this is going to be the thing that's going to occupy um, almost the entirety of book six and seven. Because book six and seven are going to be devoted to identifying uh, the philosopher. Um, and then this is going to be more book seven to revising the education of the guardians again in order to make it into a philosophical uh, education. So who is the philosopher? Uh, I mean, first of all, I'm going to say something about the, the controversy here. It's interesting that, like, perhaps we might think that the, the, the equality of men and women, um, the equal participation of women, and the sharing of families would be more radical or more controversial than the rule of philosophers, in part because the rule of philosophers just seems kind of fanciful. Um, but as I suggested, like the, the, the breakdown of the family is sort of a, like it at least has some sort of precedent uh, in Athenian history. And participation of women in rule has some sort of uh, precedent in other Greek cities as well. In Sparta, um, supposedly women had equal standing to speak um, in front of the assembly, for example, um, and were considered equal citizens in that regard at least. Those proposals have a sort of uh, contextual precedent um, where they are building off something. But the proposal that philosophers rule um, flies in the face of uh, Glaucon and Adamantus's common sense. Um, and Adamantus especially is completely uh, horrified at this possibility. He thinks this is insane. So Socrates attempts to defend it by saying, well, who really is the philosopher? The philosopher is someone who um, has an insatiable and uh, indiscriminate love of learning. That's at 475D. The philosopher is also the lover of the sight of truth, he says. That's at 475E. The philosopher is the lover of each thing that is itself, he says, at 480A. And then finally, at 485B, he defines the philosopher as the lover of the learning that reveals what is always. All of these, all of these claims about what the philosopher is are premised on a claim that Socrates makes repeatedly over the course of book five, um, and that I think is one of the, the main threads of book five. That claim is that speeches reveal the truth about what is best uh, in a way that practice or real life um, does not and cannot. So he makes this claim at, 450, at 452A through D, he makes this argument that speech reveals truth better than practice. He repeats the same sorts of claims at 472D, 473A. And then he repeats them again at 475B through D. And I think this is a fundamental axiom of Socratic practice and something that I think 
who were asking about the relationship between Socrates and Plato last time. And I think this is one of the things, this is a claim that Plato absolutely believes as well. That speech reveals more truth than deeds do, right? That the argument reveals truth uh, in a way that practice does not. Um, but that claim is a surprising claim, I think, right? Um, and it's one that Adamantus challenges. He has a hard time accepting this claim that speech reveals truth. Um, he challenges it 487b. And Socrates responds to Adamantus's challenge with uh, this famous image, uh, the image of the city as a ship. According to this image, the, the city is a ship um, and the owner of the ship uh, is the multitude, right? The demos, the, the, the multitude of citizens. But the multitude is poor, has bad eyesight uh, and bad hearing and doesn't know how to pilot the ship itself. And so there are a bunch of sailors on the ship who are constantly vying for the owner's um, leeway to pilot the ship themselves. Um, these are the, the politicians, right? The ones who want to be elected to office. But Socrates claims that the ones who are vying for the piloting position don't know anything about star charts or how to pilot. Right? All they know is how to talk and how to argue. The true pilot is a person who stares at the stars and learns about the relations of the stars to navigation, right? Um, but because they have devoted themselves to this study of the stars, they look ridiculous to these sailors um, who are um, arguing with one another over who should pilot. And what this sets up, what this image sets up, I think, um, is actually there are two sorts of speech um, that are important. Um, and it's, uh, in, this is going to circle back to questions that we've considered with the Gorgias as well. Um, and these two sorts of speech are, um, I think, incredibly central to Socrates' uh, definition of philosophy and to his argument um, going forward. So I want to stress this. The two sorts of speech are aoristic on the one hand, um, and what Socrates calls dialectic on the other. Aoristic um, is associated with rhetoric, right? With, uh, with political rhetoric. And according to Socrates, when you are engaged in aoristic, which just means sort of arguing for arguing's sake, right? Um, you're arguing over mere names, right? You're arguing over uh, words. And what you're seeking uh, is the uproar of uh, praise and blame from the audience. Um, and Aristotle, or, and uh, Socrates sort of equates this with uh, contentious quibbling and quarreling, right? um, and and that sort of uh, that sort of argument. Um, on the other hand, there is on the other hand 
the type of logos, the type of speech that Socrates carries out is dialect, dialectic, dialectics, um, which just means um, like talking things through, right? Discussion. It's the sort of discussion that reveals truth. And in particular, he says, it's the sort of discussion that reveals paradigmatic cases that reveal the truth of a phenomenon. So if Aristike is concerned with rhetoric and the business of politicians, dialectics is the business of philosophia. This is what reveals truth, whereas Aristike deals only with appearances. The word uh, for appearances is the same as the word for opinions. Um, it's doxa, um, which is related to dogma, right? Dogmas, uh, like strongly held opinions, uh, beliefs that you can't shake. So um, this, this division within logos, between um, dialectics and heuristics, between arguing for argument's sake and talking about mere words and talking about the things themselves um, in a way that reveals the truth of matters is, I think that's the even more fundamental opposition for Socrates than the opposition between speech and practice. What really matters is a division within speech itself. And the way in which Socrates tries to motivate the move away from just arguing about things heuristically to engaging in dialectics is by saying um, that there is one thing about which everyone wants to know the truth. That is, there's one thing about which people are not satisfied with having the most popular opinion, right? Um, they, don't, they don't want to um, just agree with everybody about, but they really want to know the truth about. Um, and that is the question, what is good, right? No one wants what only seems to be good. No one wants only what people think is good. What people want is the real good. They want things that are really and truly good. And Socrates is going to motivate his entire discussion of philosophy um, in book seven um, around this question. Because the question of what is good and why are good things good, what is it that makes things good, is a question about which we are not satisfied with opinion, popular um, approval, or um, something like that. We want, we want the real thing when it comes to goodness. Um, and that's going, to be, that's going to be the basis of the argument um, in book seven. So I know book six uh, ends in a very cryptic note on this question of the good with this uh, image of the divided line. Book seven is going to pick up with a, a variation on that image, the image of the cave.
famous images. I'm going to upload to Slack uh, a my uh, my attempts to explicate those in visual form, um, and we'll talk about we'll talk about um, philosophy and those those images um, next time.